0: This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management. Experienced wealth managers who go above and beyond to guide and support you. CanDo is more than just an attitude. It's navigating today for a brighter tomorrow. Visit CanDoWealth.com
1: Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots, the Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Cindy Yu and I'm joined by Katie Balls and Jill Rutter from the think tank UK in a changing Europe. Now, Katie, all of Westminster today has been waiting for Sue Gray, another Sue Gray report, which has just come out in the last few minutes. Tell us, what does it say?
2: Yes, as ever, we have been waiting for Sue Gray. Now, Ultimately the upshot of this written ministerial statement is that Sue Gray is not cooperating as fully as the government would expect when given the opportunity to, re- to make representations a part of the process. They're saying she has chosen not to do so and what they're trying to do there is ultimately look into the circumstances leading to her resignation which was sparked when it was reported that she was uh, she had been uh, appointed or was being offered at least the job of Keir Starmer's chief of staff. Now that was a leak to the media which I think Labour was slightly caught on the hoof so you had her uh, resigning quickly you've had Keir Starmer refusing in various interviews to get into any details on timings of when he first spoke to Sue Gray. The Tories are alleging if you look at various reports which this uh, statement does not go into that there is a conflict here because she was in the role related to the partygate report in Propriety and Ethics around the time she was also speaking to Labour. Now there's two investigations. This is a Everton Ministerial statement on the Cabinet Office investigation. That feeds into the COBA investigation, which is a Cobra is led by the former Tory MP Eric Pickles. And it's a COBA that could ultimately say, We've taken these things into account, you failed the civil service code in terms of X and X, and therefore we're suggesting you can take this appointment, but not for at least a year, and here are the conditions on doing it. Now there's nothing forcing Kistama to have to listen to that, but he himself um, has said that a Labour government would follow recommendations via COPA, so it'd be quite hard for him to ignore it at that point. So I think you can see part of this is a government investigation, but you can also see, I think, in terms of some of the Tory thinking about about this, which is lots of people, Stephen Bush being one of them on this podcast when first appointed, said you know, this is a this is a great get for Keir Starmer in terms of preparing for government. Is it the case that a failure to report and the the process around it means that it stops being a coup for Keir Starmer and starts to be a massive headache, by which you have someone who's appointed but can't do their role and it raises the question about whether they ever take the role. And then um in the process, can you see Keir Starmer's reputation dented? Uh, you know, lots of people say he's Mr. Rules, and that I think the Tories are trying to fight against that. There, of course, is one of those stories which I think probably has more pick-up in Westminster than people walking around the streets around the country thinking, Sue Gray Keir Starmer report. Mm. But I think that's what they're trying to do here.
1: Now, Joe, this written statement says that it's made a confidential assessment to ACOBA on what Sue Gray has or hasn't done. But do you think that if it is found that she has broken the civil service code, what would be the implications of that for civil service impartiality? Because it ha- it's had quite a few tough weeks, hasn't it?
0: Well, I think there is a bit of a, I mean, she and Keir Starmer have, I think, repeatedly said that she wasn't talking to Labour when she was doing the party gate investigation. Remember, Sue Gray was no longer head of the Propriety and Ethics group in the Cabinet Office. She'd left that job to go to Northern Ireland, and then her actual job was to be a Second Permanent Secretary in the Cabinet Office in the Department of Leveling Up, leading on intergovernmental relations and in the Constitution. That was the job she got when she came back from Northern Ireland. So she was actually just sort of, you know, if you like... Brought back by Simon Case to do the investigation to Partygate, when he had to recuse himself mm. because it was reported that some of the parties happened in Simon Case's outer office. Uh, so Simon Case had to step down shortly after agreeing to do that investigation for the Prime Minister. And so I think there's a, there is an issue on timing. The sort of you know actually the Sue Gray report was completed early ish last year. We then had that hiatus while. The Met investigated, and then I think the report finally published in the summer in June, or, um, looking back. But I think then, you know, and actually Kira Starmer didn't have a vacancy for Chief of Staff at that stage, so we'll have to see what's said about timing. But there then was a sort of second stage when the Privileges Committee report, no, the Privileges Committee started looking at the uh, at party gate, And there was some sort of discussion, I think, probably with the Cabinet Office Propriety and Ethics team. We don't know whether Sue Gray was involved or not then about her report. So, you know, so maybe there'll be a bit of things on the overlap there. But I think the real sort of issue is less the report. That's rather something that Boris Johnson allies are determined to be able to discredit Sue Gray's report, which many other people think was really quite mild towards Boris Johnson, uh, given some of the facts, but um, they're quite keen to be able to portray the Sue Gray report as a stitch up by somebody who was already you know, making her bid for a job with the Labour leader. Uh, I'm not sure that's, uh, that's likely to be an outcome of uh, this investigation. But some of the concerns about Sue Gray is there are guidance in the minister, in the sort of guidance around how to apply the ministerial, the civil service code, sorry, not the ministerial code. There is stuff on disclosing contacts with the opposition. And that's the bit they will be looking at is, did she disclose this to anyone? Now, normally you would assume that's a sort of contact with the opposition where you you might be briefing them on a policy or something like that. And obviously, that's absolutely directly in ministers' interest to know if their civil servants are having chats to the opposition. It may be that that's something they authorise because they actually want the opposition to understand the basis of a policy, whatever. But it's a bit harder to know quite what the process is supposed to be when you're talking to the opposition about possibly taking a job with them. Should you be telling Michael Gove that would be a bit weird for your relationship if that job then didn't pan out to say, yeah, Michael, I just want you to know that uh, that I'm you know, looking into this possibility of a job with the opposition, doesn't really work. Do you tell your permanent secretary? Maybe you do that. Sue did have a permanent secretary because she was only what's called a second permanent secretary. So maybe she should have done that. And I think what actually we're discovering is that our rules, we don't actually have rules that are written that actually make any sense in a world where it is actually possible for civil servants to decide that they want to go and work for a political party or indeed become candidates at this very high level of seniority, which make a bunch of sense. And we'll discover that when we go to a Coba That's called the Advisory Committee on Business Appointments. I don't think working for Keir Starmer is a business appointment, but that's the only body we have to look, even in the very toothless way that Katie described, at what the rules are when people decide to change jobs with a degree of sensitivity about it. So uh, we're working in quite murky areas.
1: Yeah. And Casey Sue Gray is not the only civil servant in the news today. The Times Splash is on call for top civil servant to go amid worse crisis. And this is a story about Anthony Seldon, one of Britain's leading historians and a biographer of Boris Johnson, saying that the Cabinet
2: Secretary, Simon Case, has to leave his job. Why? Anthony Seldon's comments are about uh, the fact that civil service is not running in the way it should. The mood is very low amongst civil servants and suggesting that Simon Case is, is not the right leader for the civil service at this time. Now, i would be interested to hear what Jill says on this, but I think it's quite clear that lots of civil servants do not see Simon Case as one of their own. He is uh, a figure who is viewed more as a courtier, something mm-hmm. I I'm writing about in this week's magazine and he's more of a political operator I think is, is a perception as opposed to someone perhaps like Jeremy Haywood who I think at times ministers found really difficult but do do say that when they needed the machine to be turned on and something to push it on like he had the ability to do it and I think there is some skepticism at least in certain quarters that Simon Case has that ability to do it and a lot of this I mean, this is not the first time there have been questions about Simon Case's ability in that role. It happens many times. And I think we can get a bit overexcited. This is not my personal excitement. But, you, you know, in saying, "Oh, how long have they got when actually he, he has survived many scrapes so far, it's not clear that Downing Street are completely unhappy of him, um, even if there is unhappiness on the civil service side. Now, this has been reignited over the Richard Sharp situation which we spoke about on Friday with obviously Richard Sharp appears to have had the view that when he alerted Simon Case about the introduction to Sam Blythe regarding the potential loan and said and flagged that he was in the appointment process for the BBC chairman he thought that was enough in and of itself and lots of people say if you're gonna be BBC chairman you should have also known to bring it up at these various points but I think at the very least it still raises questions about simon case's judgment you know speaking to figures uh, you know working in government he say it just happens to the defense which is he doesn't quite remember exactly what was said in the meeting so he can't fully corroborate it it just has a an air of familiarity where there have been quite a few uh difficult situations for the government whereby it gets quite murky around simon case's involvement so I think of these things, is Simon Case on the way out? Could he choose to go himself? It's totally possible, but he does have a way of, uh, you know, finding more lives.
1: <laughs> Joe, what do you think? Has Simon Case just used one too many lives this time?
0: Who knows, who knows? And one of the things about people
1: who get to be
0: in a position like Cabinet Secretary is that they are survivors and they're usually quite formidable operators, as Katie was saying. I mean, Simon Case was always a rather controversial appointment as cabinet secretary. You'll remember that Dominic Cummings claimed the Health and Social Care Committee um, after he left Downing Street that he'd appointed Simon Case because he needed somebody uh, who the Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, would listen to when Dominic Cummings was ceasing to have as much influence as he wanted. So that's always been a bit of a question mark about Simon Case. I mean, Jeremy Hayward actually, I would have said, was quite good at playing the courtier and a pretty savvy political operator. But the difference with Jeremy Hayward was that I think everybody in the civil service always also acknowledged that Jeremy Hayward was the really obvious candidate to be cabinet secretary. And I think Simon Case coming in, never having run a department, nor had Jeremy, but also coming in at age 41, I mean, skipping probably two or three civil service generations to get appointed. That puts quite a lot of people's noses out of joint. I think he always had quite a hard brief coming in. He was serving a very difficult prime minister, a prime minister who Case himself admitted didn't want to play by the rules. I think he's found it quite hard to maintain standards. He's not helped himself. Things like those WhatsApp exchanges and that handcake Of course, Simon Case didn't know that those WhatsApp messages would be given in bulk. To Isabel Oakshot and via her to the Daily Telegraph, but perhaps a older and wiser person might not have, you know, been conversing with ministers in quite such a relaxed and chummy sort of way, uh, in such an offhand way. I think the failure to take notes of the Richard Sharp meeting that again goes to a bit of casualness and naivety. But I mean, clearly, you know, Anthony Seldon has. Written this big book about Boris Johnson's tenure, has come to the conclusion that Boris Johnson was an absolutely disastrous and unsuitable person to be Prime Minister. And I think probably sees Simon Case as a facilitator of that. And that's why he's calling for Simon Case to go. I'm not sure I would have made it a front page news story uh, in quite the same way as a person with books to sell makes a claim that the Cabinet Secretary should go. But the are clearly sort of repeated question marks over Simon Case, Simon Case's judgment that keep coming up time and again, whether Simon Case decides that this actually is a reason to occasion his departure or Rishi Sunak decides that actually there's someone else he thinks would make a better cabinet secretary because it's not just a question of getting rid of somebody, it's actually finding someone you think would do the job better and it's quite a difficult job to do. I don't know, but uh, we'll see. There's some people who say well maybe simon case will having done the queen's funeral now if he does you know king charles's coronation for someone who'd spent some time in the royal household as private secretary to prince william this actually means his sort of job in government is done he's done two of the biggest royal events of uh, the last 50 60 years so let him move on quietly having seen those through but i don't know i think you know might have Simon Case around for quite a bit longer.
2: And I think to Jill's point about the Matt Hancock lockdown files and the investigation from Simon Case, it does reflect, I think, the sense amongst those who worked with him, that he, he does feel like a very political character in a way that you wouldn't expect um, many civil servants to be, um, which can, of course, have pros, but effectively he can have the confidence of number 10, but you do also need the confidence of you know senior figures within the civil service to, to really play that role, which is to connect the two sides and make the machinery work.
1: And Katie finally there seems to be light at the end of the tunnel for the striking system at least when, when it comes to the NHS as today the NHS staff council have voted a majority to accept the pay deal so tell us about what's going on there because some unions are still anti-pay deals what, what does that
2: mean? Yeah so as, as we've discussed previously on this podcast it was never a particularly clear cut picture when you started to get the ballots coming back on the NHS staff pay offer which you could tell on the first day because you had Unison backing the deal as members accepting it and the the Royal College of Nurses rejecting the deal and it was the same deal. And it was always the case that part of the reason I think you saw so little response from number 10 in terms of reopening the offer after Pat Cullen from the, from the nursing union um, saw red and, and pressurised was because you were still in a process of more ballots coming back. Now, because of the way it is weighted when it comes to uh, the board that ultimately vote on this deal with the various unions, it's now the case that the health unions have backed the deal because of that waiting system. So that means more than a million NHS staff in England are to receive a 5% pay rise. And this was signed off at the meeting uh, with the health unions and the government. Now, as, as you point out, this doesn't mean that this is an end to all strikes. But I think it certainly means that the power of the strikers is, is diminished. So you have a situation where there are free unions still threatening to continue action. Only one of those unite currently has a strike mandate. Now, You can expect a push for more strikes in the future, but ultimately not all the unions will be doing it, so it's going to be reduced numbers striking. And then there's a question which is, if they have to seek new mandates from their members, is that going to be something where perhaps it runs out of steam or is it going to be the case that uh, those members stick with the, you know stick to their guns and think, despite this offer going through and them getting the pay rise, they still want to keep striking. I think it's definitely, you know, it's not the ideal situation for the government, but I also think it's far from being completely unideal in the sense I managed to get the pay offer through. And the question now, does that change the mood music because you do have that divide within the unions, one that's weighted in, in favour, which could really reduce um, others going ahead with strikes
1: katie and jill thanks very much and thank you very much for listening
2: and if you enjoyed listening to this podcast then why not come along to our coffee house live coronation special event on may the 10th fraser nelson katie balls and camilla tomney associate editor of the telegraph will be discussing the coronation of king charles and what it means for the united kingdom the events from 7pm at the emmanuel center in london and you can book tickets at spectator.co.uk forward slash coronation